So doubt. What do we mean by doubt? Well, doubt is not the same as scepticism, which is a kind of principled commitment to doubt everything for the sake of it. You know, the kind of thing that says that no one can prove to me that everything I experience isn't an illusion. You know, like in the film The Matrix. Remember that? Um, You know, whatever you say, I will refuse to believe you because I'm in an argumentative kind of mood. And when it comes to Christianity, I will insist at every turn that whatever evidence you provide for the reasonableness of believing in God and trusting in Jesus, the world is in fact controlled by Opus Dei, uh, who are at war with the Illuminati, and us poor, unsuspecting, normal people are stuck in the middle, unaware of the mysterious goings-on behind closed doors in the Vatican or Lambeth Palace or David Rue's study. It's all a conspiracy. Well, that kind of extreme scepticism is not exactly what we mean by doubt, though I guess some of what we talk about this evening will be relevant to that a little bit. Neither is doubt the same as unbelief. Unbelief is the decision not to have faith. It's the decision to reject Christianity and Jesus Christ outright. Whether that's from the standpoint of never having believed or from the standpoint of having been a believer perhaps for many years but finally turning one's back and falling away. That is unbelief and it is serious. But it's not exactly what we mean by doubt. Doubt can eventually lead to unbelief to turning away from God decisively. But doubt in itself refers more simply to troubles and uncertainties in the Christian life viewed from the standpoint of faith. In other words, doubt refers to a whole category of problems and issues and questions that might arise because you are a Christian, because you are a believer, or at least you have the desire to be someone who believes in Jesus Christ. Because it's when you are a believer, or, a desire, or you desire to be a believer in Jesus, that particular doubts can arise. Am I doing something stupid here? Is it reasonable to be a Christian, or Do I need to suspend all rational thought and close my eyes in order to believe in my heart what I know in my head probably isn't true? What kind of God is God anyway? He says he's a God of love and yet I look around me and what I see is people that I love suffering. And that's before I start to worry about all the people I don't know who are suffering in famine or war or natural disasters around the world. And how could a God of love send people to hell. What about predestination? If I were God, I might do things differently. I want to believe in God, but these things trouble me. And then, am I really a Christian anyway? How do I know I'm really saved? That sin I'm so ashamed of, have I really repented? Is it really possible that God accepts me? Now, can you see that those questions are all things that arise because of a desire to believe? If you're set on unbelief, well, that particular set of doubts melts away. Of course, it's unreasonable to be a Christian. 
You know, people would then say, if you've already decided there is no God, well, the reason people suffer is because there is no God and the universe is just random. So stop being so introspective and, and worrying about guilt and just try and enjoy life while you have it. But of course, if you do that, then you have a whole different set of doubts and problems and questions which are arguably far more troubling. We'll come back to that later. Now, can you you see the scope of what we're trying to address here? Doubt is about the things we struggle with because we believe in Jesus. It's not going to be possible to, to address every possible question around this, and in some ways that's why it's good that we'll have a and a at the end, because it will give an opportunity to ask further questions and to look at this in a bit more depth. But I, what I'm going to do now is focus on the first type of doubt that I mentioned. Doubts about the gospel itself. Doubts that the good news about Jesus really works, or is really true, or is really worth basing your life upon. Doubts that it's really a sensible, reasonable, rational thing to commit your whole life to Jesus Christ. That kind of fear that we might have been duped. So there's two things to look at, as you'll see on the outline. First, is the gospel foolishness? And with that, is it therefore foolish to believe the good news about Jesus? Do you ever have that kind of 3am moment? When you kind of come over in a cold sweat, wondering what on earth you're doing committing yourself to Jesus like this. And it's made worse sometimes when we hear of other Christians giving up and falling away, or or sometimes well-known church leaders, for example, chucking in their faith big style, or sometimes just a friend that you thought was rock solid, but, you know, they've gone and had an affair and they no longer call themselves a Christian. And it makes you think, am I doing something crazy here? Have they seen something that I've missed? Because this gospel, this good news, can seem so puny, so pathetic, so small, so strange, when you kind of look at it in the eyes from the standpoint of the world. And that feeling is sometimes intensified by the reaction of others around us. So you're, you, know, you, you know how it is. We, we, we rarely see Christianity presented positively on TV, do we? So more likely you'll see it kind of satirised by people like Rowan Atkinson or Stephen Fry. You know, people who in themselves are kind of likeable, often funny, um, and they often have reasonable objections against organised religion as opposed to the Christian faith in itself. But they can, in one breath, make Christianity out to be irrelevant, passe, the preserve of conservatives from a previous generation, or even just a context where abuse can flourish. Not even worth engaging with properly. Only an idiot would believe these things these days, people would think. And it's not just people out there on TV making us question these things, it might also be our own families and friends and colleagues. Many of us will have made radical lifestyle decisions one way or another on the basis of being Christians. Things that will have made those who love us and care about us think that we are mad. So think about it like this. Suppose I told you that I have decided to base my life on the teaching and example of a Bulgarian peasant called Vladimir, just to be completely random. So Vladimir lived hundreds of years ago. 
And when you ask me what I did at the weekend, I say, I went to a meeting with lots of other people who are obsessed with the peasant Vladimir. And it turns out this just isn't just a weekend thing for me. I go to things on evenings each week where we study books about Vladimir and sometimes we even claim to be able to speak to him. And even more strangely, it turns out I've made some pretty serious life decisions based entirely on what I think Vladimir would want me to do. Who I will or won't date or marry, where I live, what I spend my money on. Now I hope as, as I say that, that you are compiling a list of reasons in your head for why following Jesus is different from following a Bulgarian peasant called Vladimir. Well, Vladimir never claimed to be God, presumably. He didn't die and rise from the dead in fulfilment of long-standing promises. But you can see the point. Following Jesus can look frankly crazy to an outsider. And it's hard, not at some point, to find yourself asking yourself if you have been duped. Now, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to people saying he was mad, that this gospel he preached was nonsense. And that reading that we heard from 1 Corinthians gave the heart of his defence. There is a reason the gospel seems foolish. It doesn't come from human beings. Can you see that? Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18. But, verse 27, God chose the foolish things to shame the strong. So that it might be clear that this message of Christ crucified, chapter 2, verse 2, is from God and not from human beings. See, sometimes we can be so keen for our faith to stand up to scrutiny in a secular culture, and a secular framework, that we forget that actually within that framework it's not really designed to kind of look impressive. It's not designed to be acceptable to the non-Christian world around me with all the assumptions that they've made about how the world works and where we come from and where we're going. It's designed to challenge all that. And therefore, the gospel won't always sound elegant and wise to those around us. Actually, sometimes it will just sound foolish. Now, why does Paul say that? Ultimately, because everything about the gospel requires us to humble ourselves before God and say, I am not wise. I am not clever when it comes to me and God. He is God and I am not. And that isn't just contained in the contents of the gospel, which calls us to acknowledge our sin. It's also there in the way the gospel is packaged. Preaching which doesn't glorify the preacher, but glorifies God. That's what Paul is saying here. Everything about the gospel humbles us and points to God. Now, that's different from everything else we do, isn't it? Every other sphere of life, at work, at school, wherever it is, we are used to emphasising what qualifies us, what makes us deserve to be there, what qualifies us to take part. You know, I'm a member of the tennis club because I'm good at tennis. I'm an accountant because I passed my exams. But I'm a Christian because I have no hope before God. You probably wouldn't write that on a CV or a UCAS form. So in one sense, the scorn of those around us is, is kind of what we should expect, isn't it? 
And one reason that we may struggle with that is because actually we want people to think well of us. We want to fit into the world that we live in. We don't want to be the odd one out. And, you know, think about it. In London, the pressure is on, isn't it? At work, at school, with friends, to keep up appearances and look impressive. And we may need to face up to the fact that following Christ in an increasingly secular world carries the cost of losing the high opinion of others. It's worth saying, of course, if if we are struggling with these things, make sure it's not because of something else. Make sure it's not because that we're sitting loose to being part of the church family, sitting loose to getting into the Bible, sitting loose to working at personal holiness. If there are issues in any of those areas, it may make the gospel seem extra weak in a way that Paul doesn't mean when he calls the gospel foolish. Church is where we're encouraged by the effect of the gospel around us. The Bible is where we're convinced of the truth of the gospel for us. And our ongoing battle with sin and personal holiness as Christians is where we experience the power of the gospel in us. So if church and Bible and fighting sin day by day aren't aren't things that are really part of our lives, well, actually it will be no surprise if we're questioning the power of the gospel. Do you see? But even with those things in place, in the eyes of the world... The gospel absolutely is foolishness. So don't be surprised. Well, what then then? Does that mean we're ultimately in a losing battle on the losing side, destined always to be the underdogs? Do God and the gospel ever actually win? You know, why do my friends reject it? I'm convinced. Why why don't they believe it? Does that mean I've been duped? In other words, does the gospel work? That's the second question we need to ask. And that's why we need to turn to Mark chapter 4. So turn to that on page 1006. Mark chapter 4. Earlier in this chapter, we didn't read this, but earlier comes the parable of the sower, where the farmer goes out to sow the seed, which is the, the, the gospel, and there are different responses to the gospel represented by the seed, faring differently in different soils. And that is there to reassure Jesus' followers that when the seed doesn't take root, the problem is not with the seed but with the soil in which it's planted. There's nothing wrong with the seed. But here is something else important to grasp about the seed. When it lands in the right soil, it grows. And that growth comes about because of the power of the seed. So, verse 27, night and day, whether the farmer sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Now, I don't know much about gardening. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty hopeless, as you might notice if you come and have a look at our garden. But, you know, for example, we went away for two weeks and didn't give much thought to what was in the garden, came back, and look, there's these things which have grown all by themselves. We haven't done anything to them. But they just carried on growing, and, you know, a sunflower kind of grew up while we were away. It's incredible, isn't it? We didn't have to do anything, but it just happened. I also, there's one thing I do know about gardening, that when you plant a seed, it's not a good idea to keep digging it up to check if it's doing anything. The the, the people who are are the experts tell me that that's pretty much going to kill the seed if you keep doing that. You've just got to leave it in there and you've got to trust, you've got to water it and do all that stuff, but you've got to trust that it's going to grow. Have confidence in 
the seed. The hope for our world, for our culture, for our friends, for our families, for ourselves, isn't ultimately getting the right preacher or the right kind of church or the right atmosphere or even the right arguments. It's ultimately about having confidence in the gospel seed. But one thing we can do when we're tempted to lack confidence in the gospel seed, to to question whether we've been duped, to question the point of trying to tell friends about Jesus, is to, one thing we can do is to compare this gospel with what else the the world has to offer in answer to life's big questions. What, What does the world offer? Well, it offers lots of isms, doesn't it? Systems of thought, philosophical attempts to answer those questions, modernism, utilitarianism, Marxism, communism, atheism. And all those isms, and many like them, have have looked strong at one time or another, but they come and go. The new atheism of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens seemed very strong just a few years ago, but even more recently there are other atheists like Alan de Botton and Jordan Peterson who are saying, hang on a minute, you, you, you kind of, Richard Dawkins, you guys, it's not quite that simple. Now, Richard Dawkins, as an atheist, is convinced, in his words, that, that the universe has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But other atheists are saying, well, hang on a minute, you do actually have to believe in something ultimate. Now, they wouldn't want to say they believe in God, but they would recognise if you don't believe in something, what's the point in living at all? There's absolutely no point. And they recognise that. If there is no God, well, what makes any human life more valuable than any animal life? What's the difference between stabbing somebody and slicing a piece of vegetable? It's all atoms in the end. You see, in the face of doubts about the gospel, it's often fruitful to just realise how utterly empty the alternatives are. And that opening verse from John's gospel that we heard at the beginning of the service, you can see on the front of the service sheet, I often return to these verses in this context. They're so encouraging. People have been following Jesus, they've heard him teach about how he's the bread of life in John chapter 6, and, and he sort of said that you've got to come to me and you've got to receive me. And, they, and some of them say to him, well, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus basically replies that some of them aren't going to accept it because they're going to refuse to come to him and receive the life he offers, which involves humbling yourself in the way that we've been talking about. And they're not going to want to do that, and so they're not going to. And indeed, that is exactly what John says happened next. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then comes the key bit, the next verse. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I keep coming back to these verses because, you know, sometimes we may have those times when we struggle with how it all fits together and, you know... Uh, you know, and we, we, we worry you know, about different things, that c- c- questions that we can't answer, and we're thrown by somebody, somebody comes up with something we haven't thought of. But there's a sense in which you can say, well, look, show me something better than what I find 
in Jesus and in the gospel in the Bible. Show me something better that makes more sense of the world that we live in, that makes more sense of me as a human being. Show me that thing and I'd be delighted to consider it and, um, and, and even embrace it if I'm convinced of it. But the more you look around, the more you realise actually there is nothing. There is no suitable alternative. There is nothing there. Who, what else will offer you the life that lasts forever through death? Forgiveness that depends not on your own ability to earn it, but simply comes as a gift from God. Meaning, purpose, a, a, a reason why we're here, a reason to get out of bed in the morning to serve God for another day. So as much as we may have questions about the gospel, they're nothing compared to the massive inconsistencies and unknowns that exist in, for example, believing that there is no God at all. Now maybe you might want to come back on that in the question time and probe that a bit further, and I think it's, it's helpful to do that. But as we finish, take courage. This gospel is no passing fad. It is foolishness in the eyes of the world, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's not something of which we need to be ashamed. It is ultimately our only hope in which we must take refuge. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this time that we've had to consider these, this big question, this important question. And Father, when we do have questions that we struggle with, things we don't understand about the gospel, things which don't quite make sense to us, we pray that we would come back to you, that we would acknowledge that there is nowhere else to go, that you alone have words of eternal life. Pray that we would be able to trust in you with all our hearts, lean not on our own understanding, but acknowledge you in all our ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, okay. So, would anybody like to ask a question from what we heard this evening? Or anything to do with the question about doubt? Yeah, just a slightly random question. Um, There's a verse that always pops into my head when um, thinking about doubt, which is, uh, I believe, help me with my unbelief. What, two questions. Where is it and what does it mean? Is it Mark chapter 9? I don't know. It is in Mark chapter 9. Um, and it's, uh, it's a guy who just comes to Jesus kind of going, oh, look, you can... You can um, um, they bring this, this child with a convulsion to Jesus. Mark chapter 9, um, verse 17. And... Um, uh, uh, and the disciples try and drive out this spirit, but they can't. And Jesus, uh, slightly confusing, but he says, you know, you know, you're an unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. You know, it just feels like Jesus is like rolling his eyes a bit. Come on, guys. And so they bring him, and, he, uh, and he's foaming at the mouth. He's convulsing. How long has he been like this from childhood? Um, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, verse 23, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And 
Um, that is what happens. Um, and I think, I think essentially, it's just saying, here's a, here's a guy who's just at his wit's end with a situation that he kind of thinks Jesus can probably help with, but he's a bit confused. And Jesus is saying, look, you've just got to trust me. You've just got to trust that I can do this. And he's like, okay, Lord, I've, I want to be able to believe. Help me believe. And actually, I think that is a really helpful dynamic to think about. The, um, particularly if, you know, the Bible says faith itself is a gift. Faith is not something that we come up with in ourselves. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, not by works. Um, and, you know, you, by, by grace you can say through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Even faith itself is a gift that's given to you. So there are times when you're going, I, can't, I don't know what to do, I can't, I can't even articulate what it means to trust God in this Situation. I think the, the point is throw yourself on God's mercy and just say, I, need, I can't do this. I need your help. And I need you to give me the faith to trust you and take the next step. And that's the kind of thing he's doing. And I think that is quite a helpful thing to do sometimes. In our, Rather than think, well, it's down to me to figure it all out. Actually, I think, I think Christian faith begins with us saying, I can't do this. I can't suss it out. I don't get it. I need, I need your help. And then he gives you the faith and then start, things start to get good. Mm. Uh, the next question on, on doubts. Uh, um, so something I've always struggled with is, I guess, um, the eternal security of believers, you know, the assurance of my own salvation in the context of the following Bible passages. So there are a number of, of lists like in Ephesians and Corinthians where Paul says the following people, idolaters, homosexuals, uh, fornic- homosexual practices, fornicators, liars, do not have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. He says that in different ways several times. And I think in the book of Revelation it says, and as for the liars and some other people, their lot is the lake that burns with fire. And um, what I have always kind of struggled with is this view that, you know, effective, I, I guess it feels to me like reading the text that, you know, Christians should be none of those things, and if they are those things, then it's like a light bulb that's not turned on properly, so maybe they don't have a pure scientific faith. And yet that doesn't seem to match up the reality of the vast majority of Christians I know, including myself, struggle with some of those different things at times, and I just wonder... Are we all kidding ourselves, or you know, or is this kind of yeah. kind of form of perfectionism? And I know there's a good book by Benjamin Warfield called Perfectionism, which Don Carson recommends as the best book to read in this. And I never got around to actually reading it. I bought it, but as a lazy student, I'm going to take you for it out the top. Well, I think the first thing is to read Perfectionism by B.B. Warfield. <laughs> but if you've not, no, I mean, no, it's a serious question, and it's a really good question, um, and. Um, yeah, I mean, this is 1 Corinthians 5. I think there's a sense in which those sins are um, are held out as... You're talking about people who unrepentantly, and in a way that's just like, yeah, this is who I am, I'm a thief. You know, I don't have a problem with that. No, you don't belong in, in the kingdom. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, or, you know, I'm an adulterer, or whatever it might be. Um, that the word you used there was struggle, which 
I think, immediately puts it in a different category. So obviously, I mean, obviously some people might struggle with these things in isolation from faith in Jesus, but uh, at the end of Galatians, Paul outlines what the Christian life looks like and what, what living by the Spirit looks like. And uh, he, he says, uh, Galatians 5.16, I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So we kind of go, oh, right, okay. So that sounds like if I live by the Spirit, there will be nothing, I won't be giving in to the sinful nature. Well, no, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. So do you see what he's saying? That the normal Christian life... <coughs> is one of conflict between what you know is right and what you end up doing um, and struggling with. And struggle is exactly the word, because the, the person who goes through life thinking none of these things are a problem is the person who has a problem. But the person who says, I want to go Jesus' way and I'm praying, I'm dealing with this and I'm repenting and I'm confessing and I'm trusting in Jesus, and it's an ongoing battle is the person who's actually being led by the Spirit, according to Paul. So, um, uh, keep living by the Spirit. But it's a, it's a really good question. That's a really sort of practical thing that we all may often struggle with. Great question. Wait, wait, should we have one final question and then we'll finish? If there is any more. I guess um. the most famous doubter in the Bible would be Thomas. Hmm. Um, what couldn't we learn from Jesus' treatment of him? Mm, thank you. Yeah, great. And one of the reasons I didn't look at Thomas was because we sort of touched on him this morning. Um, and the, the sermon this morning, in, at the, from the beginning of 1 John, is, is not completely irrelevant to the subject of, of doubt. But yes, doubting Thomas might be the first person we think of when we think of doubt. <coughs> and um, he's, on, he's in John chapter 20. And he's the guy who says... Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails are, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And I guess lots of us have sympathy with Thomas because we think, well, you know, yeah, I'm a bit like that. And, um, and then, and then we, we might even start to feel a little bit cross that he doubted, but then Jesus actually revealed himself to him. So, you know, how's that fair? Because the rest of us, we, we struggle with doubts like that, and yet we don't get him appearing in front of us. Because that's what happens, isn't it? He, he, Jesus appears, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And that's exactly what Thomas does, my Lord and my God. But what Jesus then says is the absolutely key bit. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, we then go, okay, well, it doesn't feel like that to me. I mean, I think I can see Thomas is blessed. You know, he's seen and believed, but it doesn't. I don't feel very blessed having not seen, like Thomas. I'd much rather have seen, and I'd be really confident. Um, don't forget that people, plenty of people did see Jesus and still weren't convinced. That's something to think about. But the, the, what what John then says is is the key thing for us. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So ultimately, the story of Doubting Thomas is actually there to get us to realise how privileged we are to have the whole account written out, all the signs um, written down, the eyewitnesses who've been there, who've seen everything, have got it down on paper for us, 
and we can then see and believe on the basis of what we read. And that, that, that is why John has included this. That's what he thinks he's doing, is to give us confidence so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we too may have life. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't, don't feel like you're spiritually inferior because you haven't seen Jesus like Thomas did. Realise that some people saw Jesus all the way through his ministry and just went, nah, he's a fraud, you know, I'm not convinced. You know, it happened all the time. And we, we had it a bit in Matthew, didn't we, in Daniel's passage that we preached on a couple of weeks ago. But, the, you know, they, they see all these great miracles and the, the final thing the Pharisees conclude at the end of the whole thing is, yeah, no, he's got a demon. You know, obviously, you know, after all, all of that. So you, you, if you want to, you will always come up with an alternative explanation for who Jesus is and what it means to trust him. You could always think of something. But it's written so that you can have confidence that these things are true and um, you can believe in him. So when you struggle like Thomas, go back to the Bible. That's the answer. Go back to the Bible. Go back to the first-hand accounts of Jesus' life and realise you've got so much more from the beginning to end of Jesus' life than any of the individual disciples had. So trust him. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for this time that we've had to think about these big questions, important questions, things that we all struggle with in different ways at different times. And we thank you for the confidence that we can have, which is not in ourselves and our ability to believe, but is in Jesus. And thank you for these eyewitness accounts. Thank you for the apostles who testify um, and proclaim Jesus so that we can know him today and we pray that we would um, keep coming back to the Bible so that we can uh, see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. Please help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.